Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number 48. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Shani Oates, occultist, mystic, traditional craft practitioner, researcher, lecturer, historian, and matriarch of the people of Goda and maid of the clan of Tubal Cain. And we will get into what all that means a little bit later. She is also the author of Tubilo's Green Fire, The Arcane Veil, Star-Crossed Serpent, and many, many more books. Quite a prolific author. And this was quite a in-depth interview about traditional paradigms and practices. So sit back and relax. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a good one. We also want to thank our Patreon supporters as usual. Despite not having different tiers and rewards, you guys and girls are still there to support things and keep the lights on. So thank you very much. If anyone would like to join our Patreon community and help us continue rolling along with this experiment, please go over to Patreon and do what you think is right. Before we get into the episode, we also want to plug some friends of the show and some very talented individuals. Um, We want to talk about the Brave Mysteries recording label. And specifically, we're going to highlight one of their recent projects called the Communion of Saints. Um, And what this is, is a collaboration of 70-some, maybe 77 different artists and each track is dedicated to a different saint so if that doesn't sound awesome I don't know what does a little bit about them Brave Mysteries was founded in 2010 by Nathaniel Ritter and Clay Ruby primarily known for their work in the recording projects Kinnit Her and Burial Hex respectively The name of the label was created as a call to action using the word brave as a verb, as if to say to their listeners, go forth and brave mysteries. The duo also used the word brave as an adjective when they were curating releases for the label. The criteria of a piece of music seeming brave would be one of the deciding factors to release an album or not, which is pretty cool. They have been ruthlessly eclectic in their offerings, ranging the entire spectrum of underground music and beyond. They also work with musicians and artists from all around the globe, as well as drawing on spiritual contributors from far into the celestial spheres, all the way deep into the Chthonic realms, thus fulfilling their motto, from the heart of Wisconsin to the furthest reaches of the cosmos. The label has slowed its release schedule as the co-founders continue to amass other passions and pursuits, which will undoubtedly continue to influence and enhance their artistic output. As always, we want to dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius. 
and may any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with ourselves, may equally realize awakening. Okay, we are delighted and excited to have uh, Shani Oates with us today. Uh, thank you for coming on with us and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for asking me. Yes, welcome. Deepest respect to you. Thank you for agreeing to engage in this discussion with us today. My pleasure. Been a long time waiting, as you say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So maybe let's start off with with the obvious starting point. And um, if you don't mind giving us a little of your backstory in the magical arts and how you got to where you are now. Oh, the background to the magical arts that I suppose with like many of us, it begins when you're a child and you fantasize about magic and things and you never quite lose that as many other people do. It stays with you and it intrigues you and draws you into to deeper avenues of, of pursuit and intrigue. And you you have a thirst and a hunger that, that cannot be sated. So you seek other people out and you seek their knowledge so that you can expand your own. And this is a way we grow and decide what isn't right for us. And for me, it was simply a matter of tradition. Everything that interested me was culture-based. Um, it had a deep resonance with me than the natural customs of of my grandparents, for instance, that that brought me up with an awful lot to do with the woodcraft and various other natural traditions to do with folklore. So I had a good grounding in many aspects of traditional craft, um, not so much in the occult. Those I pursued, like many do, in the darkest corners of your bedroom at night with a book by Alistair Crowley and thinking oh this is naughty um and it all seems very very dark and weird but when you get inside his head it's just not and it's a different level so um it's also i pursued anthropology and religion and looked into everything that i could that would feed into how i understood what the craft was about and as I was uh, mentioning, I read a book that I thought was particularly interesting and finally grabbed me in a way that resonated with what I felt at a fundamental level of my being. Um, but it wasn't for many, many years until I actually met someone who expressed that same opinion and view of the craft. And that was when I got the opportunity to read an article by Evan John Jones in The Cauldron. And that was it. I, I had felt I had finally found a symbiotic person. 
And so I wrote to him and he responded very kindly. And we engaged for a couple of years in long, long, lengthy letters and phone calls. And after that great expanse of time, which seemed interminable to me, he invited me down. And so I went to visit him and we immediately struck an accord. Um, and he took me under his wing and decided to mentor me and my partner. And in, eventually the tradition came through him to us and we've been its caretakers ever since until a couple of years ago when um, my partner resigned as magister and I ha now have a new magister. I'm still the maid of the clan, but my new magister is Ulrich Goding and my partner is, is an elder, a much revered elder. Um, so we continue in that tradition that was kindly shared with us and he mentored us for so many years and we learned an awful lot. Um, he honed our skills and focused into this particular tradition, which is so remarkable. We've never even considered anything else since really. Thank you. And for those who aren't familiar, um, Evan John Jones is the successor of Robert Cochran. Can you maybe go into who Robert Cochran is and the, the clan that you were a part of? I can. I hate to interrupt, but before that, I was going to ask if you could just elaborate for people who might not be aware of who Evan John Jones was. Of course. Of course. Um, Evan John Jones was um, a very close friend of, of Robert Cochran's, and together they actually founded the clan. Um, a lot of people aren't fully aware of, of Evan's contribution to to the uh, construction of the clan but they met um, very early on when uh, Robert Cochran was still putting his ideas together he'd been around the circuit he'd met quite a few other occultists and people in the craft and he was he'd even worked with several of them and he was formulating his own ideas together in in a way that he wanted to find an outlet and an expression for them, uh, but was very frustrated at all counts to just be stopped by um, people that didn't seem to get where he was coming from. John was the first one that did, and also who had a background that facilitated um, Robert's need for expression. And it is through Evan John Jones that the deeper and her, um, hereditary tradition of the craft came into being um, and was made available to Robert Cochran to work within um, as an external premise. Um, so they were able to share this tradition, um, fired up and fueled by Robert's remarkable um, mystical insights. Um, this was grafted onto the basic tradition that um, John had been exposed to. And they, they took it from there and they gathered other people around them. And for a very long time, Roy was, um, Robert Cochran considered Evan John Jones to be his right hand man. And when Robert tragically died in the summer of 66, it was, um, Evan John Jones that Robert Cochran's widow then, um, transposed the tradition to with her as the acting maid. Um, 
And so it was then bequeathed to Evan John Jones, who stuck with it for about 30, 40 years on his own, bless him, um, with others coming and going in between. He had several people in the clan, um, but none of, none of whom stayed, which tends to be the way of most clans these days. Um, some did and some didn't, um, but he, he held out and he was its caretaker um, avidly for many, many years. Back in the, the 60s, there wasn't a great deal of um, choice, shall we say, in the craft scene. It was basically split into what was the general occult or there was the, the rising um, practice of Wicca. And both Evan John Jones and Robert Cochran came from very different backgrounds and neither of them were particularly considered to be occultists, although both had trod in those waters and um, decided it wasn't for them. Um, <clears throat> and Robert Cochran had a vision of an alternative form of craft to wicker. He decided to challenge the accepted um, precepts of the general pagan and occult world of his time, offering a culture-based craft bound by custom and tradition. His was um, a devotional faith. Um, he chose to evolve away from the indulgences that he perceived that were prevalent within Wicca and 20th century occultism. He, it was his vision that, dis, that pushed really the idea of a clan-based system, um, uh, harking back to older traditions of English custom um, that had long since died out, at least on the surface. Um, but as I say, through meeting Evan John Jones, he decided that some were very much still extant, even if they were hidden. Um, so for him, I suppose it was a dream come true. Um, and for John, who had a, a very deep seated love for his culture and traditions, it was a way of expressing them that was beyond his own abilities in poetic mysticism. Um, so it was definitely a relationship that, that was fired up and worked beautifully. And so the clan of Tubal Cain came into being, um, renamed from its original form that, that John had been familiar with. Um, I do refer to him as John rather than Evan John, because to me, he was always John. Um, that's that's how our our closeness um it was something other people called him evan that to me was always john um so i think robert cochran um has been described by several other people as quite an anarchist um i think someone even referred to him as the kia hardy of the craft because he was such um a force of being he he turned everything um to change it and bring it into the 21st century as we are now but he was so far ahead of his time that he wanted to make it innovative he wanted to shake it up he wanted to get everyone back to looking at the mysteries um pull it back with the, the true mysteries um of the ancient traditions that he felt had been lost and that the, uh, both the occultists and Wicca were leaving out and not addressing. These were matters very deep to their own um, sense of 
um, dignity, I suppose, within what was going on. And so they, they fought hard um, against the tide because they were very, very unpopular. The, the clan even then was not a popular system um, because it challenged the status quo of, of Wicca, which was very popular. And he was very outspoken and his, his frustration, Robert Cochran's frustration at not being able to progress forward or influence people um, put him on an even shorter fuse than he was alleged to, to have had. Um, and his outburst became quite considerable. But he, he was led and driven. He was such a driven person and everything mattered so deeply to him. Um, it's hard for us, I suppose, now to look back and imagine his frustration at not being able to express himself when we have such free reign now. Um, but the the powers that be um, really had a good grip on the on the craft. It was very much a um, political motivation. It was also motivated largely by influential people of the middle classes. And he just wasn't of that set. And so he was frustrated at every turn. But never, nevertheless, he and John forged ahead and they created something that's, that's still around today. Its legacy is remarkable and it's influenced far more than, than Robert or John could have ever imagined in, in subtle and unsubtle ways. Um, Robert Cochran's personal vision at the time was to set up an, the equivalent alternative to Wicca, <clears throat> but in a traditional sense. So that's, that's what um, set them up anyway, um, moving forward with them. Um, they gathered so other people around them and they were not very, as I say, not very popular. So his undisputed impact upon the craft is very much apparent 50 years later. And we, the clan of Tubal Cain, continue um, to put out his ideas as well as John's, which weren't always sympathetic, but largely were. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, basically, um, as I say, they, they sought to reanimate the cultural mysteries of the United Kingdom and the northern traditions of northern Europe and Scandinavia, um, bound within a mystical um, mystery. I mean, he, I think Robert Cochrane is quoted often as saying that he believed that his craft was the last mystery tradition um, remaining, which is a sad indictment, really, if that is true. Um, I know that there are a couple of other traditional groups still actual um, that are hanging on to their old traditions and ideals but they are far and few between many are modern which is fine um, I think John was very much an advocate of if even if something is created today it has no less worth than something that was centuries old and I think that's a lovely a lovely outlook um, but having said that he was um, himself deeply moved by the, the older traditions of his people. I think 
one of the main points of dispute between Robert Cochrane's idea of the traditional craft and Wicca was this this east and west divide, or rather the north, west and the southeast. Um, he was very much opposed to the, the Mediterranean view of the craft, um, which is where Wicca came in. Um, John was not so divided on Wicca. He felt it had a purpose um, and shouldn't be eschewed, but Robert did not agree with that. He was very antagonistic of it. Um, but Robert's view um, was very much, um, how can I say, he considered himself to be a guardian of the, the older mysteries and traditions. He sought the pursuit of wisdom. That was primarily his goal, to, to grasp Gnosis for all true seekers. Um, and in that sense, he referred to his path as the faith, um, because only if you were of the faith and a true seeker would the pursuit of wisdom and Gnosis um, come to you. He believed truth um, was um, the goal, the ultimate goal. And in fact, he referred to the ultimate Godhead as truth. Um, and the, the pathway to that was through Gnosis, through um, love and beauty, which he considered the tenets of the faith. Um, so for him, mysticism was um, the primary practice, not spellcraft. Um, again, he was very much opposed to anything that was superstitious or um, based in fertility rites, as he called it. He called that dancing paganism, and that wasn't for him at all. So he placed particular virtues um, ahead of, of those kinds of practices um, as the paramount expression of his faith. And he considered that seekers were pilgrims and that profound insights would prevail only through pain and sheer force of will. So he was quite um, a strict disciplinarian um, and did push those people that came to the clan. Um, and his, his entire method of working was outside and robed, being different to being inside and unrobed as wicker. Everything could not be more diametrically opposed if, if he tried to do it on purpose. Um, so the, the rites were often masked they were often silent, they're mysterious. Um, there, were, there were no great um, long incantations or calls. But there were lots of chanting before the silence. So there was action and repose. There was lots of movement and then stillness. So the, the, um, the contrast, it was a, move, a movement of contrast so that the experience was one where you were constantly shuttled back and forth in between various um, psychic and physical experiences. Um, now, assuming his birthright, he referred to himself as a member of the people um, and of the clan of Tubal Cain, romantically declaring himself to be a follower of Odd. Uh, child of Tubal Cain, the hairy one. Now that is a direct quote from one of his um, missives. Um, and I, I can say that after some um, investigation, the word 
clan itself is, of course, a Gaelic word meaning children. So in, he is, in effect, there saying, I am a child of Tubal Cain, because the clan is, we are all children of the gods. We are all um, here um, at their behest. Now, he didn't refer to them as gods specifically, but they, they were to him the, the fathers, mothers, the family, because that's basically what a clan is. It's a family-oriented thing rather than disparate people coming together. It's very much of kin and kindred. And so the rules that um, abound within the clan are very different to those of a coven. And he, he went on to describe himself as a Pella, a term that has confounded and confused many people. And it has many different interpretations, all of which are, are true um, and relate to the purpose and their origin and use, as do most words. The meaning and purpose of all words is in their use. But for him, it specifically meant um, a cunning person um, that was by trade someone that peddled his wares, that um, was a crafter, a molder of people. Um, and that's the way he perceived himself to be a molder of people. And his directives came from the other world, the spirits of the other world. Um, mm. Not so much the living, but definitely those of the other. Everything that you could encounter that was um, extrasensory and what some people would consider supernatural, he didn't use that term because to him everything was natural, everything was real, um, just in a different sense of real. Um, and again, he referred to the people as um, his kindred. So when he said, I am a member of the people of Goda, of the clan of Tubal Cain, he then went on to explain that we were known locally as witches, the good people wearing green gowns, females only, um, as the fae, horsemen of the men, and finally as wizards. And he expressed this repeatedly in different phrases and terms because he wanted to make people understand that where labels are irrelevant. People can say you're this or you're that, but they don't really know what you are and shouldn't really know what you are because only you know what you are and do. And labels are something someone else ascribes to you because they don't understand. Um, therefore, what you do and what you are is defined by your beliefs. And he was constantly trying to express what those beliefs were. Um, and his, his written works beautifully express those things. But his, his ambiguity and oblique form of writing have left many puzzles for people. Um, now, Honey. Sorry? Um, may I interject for a moment, please? Oh, of course. So um, you really just touched on something I wanted to mention too. In my studies of uh, Robert's writings and um, the way he went about things, it does seem like he was actually more in keeping with um, English English secret societies, such as the Society of the Horseman's Word, you know, the, the um, Free Gardeners and Shoemakers, Toad Men. I mean, it seemed like he somehow was connected into a, 
current that was far more more authentic than what he railed against in Gardner, which was really a reconstructionist fertility religion based upon um, Victorian magical orders. Yeah, that's that's exactly true. Yes, he's um, he he personally claimed that his father was a horseman. Um, and his mother had worked as a scryer um, for an old coven in Windsor. Um, now, his father was certainly, um, and his grandfather was certainly of a line of people that worked in the military. And he had himself worked on the barges. So he was very familiar with the horsemen and the toadmen and a lot of the traditions that were, they were involved in. So. His familiarity was quite quite impactful, uh, so he he picked up certain things that were that had a different way of expression than Wicca, much less ceremonial, much more earthy, and much more um, involved in in the culture of the traditions of the people that were not not um, not a part of Wicca at all, being of Mediterranean origin and, as you say, constructed. They didn't actually, even though they were fertility religions, they didn't really relate to the customs of the people in any way whatsoever. They had no connection to those. And it was those customs and traditions that they were trying, the clan was, was trying to revive and get interest in. Um, so the arcane uh, rites that were of the people, the general people, the ordinary people, not the well-heeled, the ordinary people in their ordinary trades and skills. Those were the rites that particularly fascinated him, the initiation rites into those um, ordinary guilds and uh, skilled faculties and why they existed and to what purpose they served and their origins, how much of those had survived from previous times, even though they were, as he often said himself, we have more akin to Christianity than um, than even most Christian people, because the rites themselves were very much practiced under Christianity, even though certain names were substituted, the people that practiced those rites would have considered themselves and did consider themselves to be Christian, unlike the Wicca that rejected Christianity totally considering themselves pagan. Robert Cochran and the clan said, no, we're not pagan. We're not pagan. Um, not with a little p, as in historical paganism, or big p with modern paganism. Um, we are of the land to some extent, um, but we are not pagan. We have um, an affinity with the land. We have relationships with the land whites and the land vetter and the house whites. Um, we recognize the spirits of the, the forests, but that doesn't make us pagan. Just in the, in the same sense that many um, for, um, northern traditions, Slavic traditions, Hungarian traditions, all recognize um, these same spirits that they engage with, but, but their faith is primarily that that exists now they wouldn't consider themselves to be pagan 
um, but that that's a very deep and complex subject. Um, but uh, yes, his his particular way of working was to um, resuscitate and understand and explore those particularly earthy traditions that had nothing to do with um, the Wicca in any sense whatsoever. Um, so he was looking at the collectives, all collectives, and a lot of these, like you say, the horsemen, the toadmen, these were collectives and they were bound by particular codes of honor. And that is where his focus was going. Um, again, these, these were not casual things. Everybody's life depended on that kind of brotherhood, that affinity, that shared mutual responsibility, the, the kindred um, spirit that, that allowed those traditions to survive. And those people survived through um, only um, on that ability to be able to support each other in the most dire circumstances and protect their livelihoods from outsiders. And this again is very, um, it's very, considered a very elite thing, but not elite as in superior, but elite as in distinctive, private and secretive through necessity, um, because your survival depended on your skills, not being superseded by someone else's. So the traditions and folklore of your people were only relevant to you and your um, train of skills. They didn't necessarily relate to others. So again, you looked after your own. Everything was very, um, very clan-based, very tribal, which again is an, an, a, quite an arcane tradition to um, uphold that tribality. Um, it's not necessarily a popular thing these days with uh, homogeneity and everything becoming one. It's it's taking that out of that homogeneity and making everything an individual construct and everything, everything is autonomous within that construct. And I think that is an important distinction because while um, there are autonomous groups and clans, they um, work in a, um, a symbiosis with each other if, if the need should arise. They can come together. I was just going to um, add that, would you say that they're bound by, they're joined by bonds of troth, of, of faith? Yes, um, they are very much based on the um, oaths and troths. Um, these enter into the traditional craft in, through the medieval guilds. Um, and become very much centralized, which leads to the intense secrecy, um, which as I mentioned, the, the protects them because of their bond to each other. And these oath bound um, traditions are part of the initiatory um, internship. And without that, you can't really establish yourself within a clan or a cult or a um, tribe, you, you must take those bonds of fealty. And without them, you, won't, you would not be trusted. You simply could not be trusted. Um, you could be an interloper or 
just someone that would be disruptive or um, your word would just not be um, honored. So to show your honor and duty to the people, you, you would take an oath of loyalty and support because livelihood depended on it. Um, and these were the cultural aspects that are of old, um, that were part of the Northern traditions, every warrior band, every um, group of people, however small, that lived and worked together on a farm, all shared mutual responsibility and um, reliability on each other. And of course, coming from the same place, they had a shared ancestry. Uh, so everything was bound within the kith and kindred of a particular group. And this is something that they were wishing to show people was an alternative, that we could be a family, um, a family of tradition, of traditional values and virtues, and that honoured a way of life that hadn't passed and could be made um, purposeful even in the modern era. It wasn't about returning to um, a horse and cart or abandoning your car or, or even your clothing or having to spin your own cloth or all of those things. Those were not where the tradition lay. It, they were expressions of it and are good skills to have but they are not the tradition itself. And it's, it's about the relationship between people, um, between people and their leader, and between those people, their ancestors, and those people and the spirits of the land and wild places, and indeed even of the home. So it's all about relationships. Um, these are significant because you build on those and it's through that um, shared sense of belonging that you assume an, an egregore and it's through then the egregore that you begin to build up a channel for Gnosis <coughs> Excuse me. and that is the primary goal um, as after you've combined everyone into this this um, group soul and group mind, you then are able to move forward and efficiently tap into um, channels of wisdom and knowledge that are seen as elsewhere in the other world. Because without that closeness and connectivity and trust and bond between people, there's too much chaos and disparate focus. It doesn't work. Um, so it, it's important to get the right people together and grow together and have that bond. So these are the mechanics of clanship, um, very much based in the ancient arts of fealty and hierarchy, flowing through and from the egregore, and the principles of um, titular heads under which um, you serve a tutelary spirit. Um, all in perfect symbiosis. So this was quite heretical and heterodox as a, a force of evolution within the craft, which is why it wasn't particularly welcomed by many of the uh, orthodox people within the craft. So for him then, 
you could say that the people of Goda was a priestly line because again, um, he embraced this, this theory of descendants and of heritage and lineage and historical origin. So everything is embraced as a line that can be taken back to another important point in history. And so the people of Goda are the priestly line, the priestly priesthood of something. And that something was Odd's men. They, in that we follow the gods of our ancestors, we are God's men. Um, so the people of Goda and the clan of Tubal Cain is an hereditary family tradition. You could say that's then bound in faith to a lineage of priest kings. In other words, it's a collective people that are in descent from elder beings that sought um, evolution through an illuminating avatar who was the most profound one, um, is known as Tubal Cain. Um, although that is known as a biblical figure and in the masonry, it in itself it's um, a name that is far more expansive than its biblical constraints in the fact that it is an all-encompassing creator of craft, of the ability to mould thought and being and everything from clay of the earth to clay of the human being. So it's, it's the whole thing as um, a spiritual ascent that's encompassed within the term Tubal Cain. It's what he represents rather than the figure, the biblical figure himself. It's a, it's an expression of everything that the idea can encompass. And if you have that as an avatar of, say, um, a Promethean Luciferian tradition, you you have some insight into how it filters through then um, through the leader with that kind of egregore behind you as a tutelary spirit um, embodied in the leader who then is able to mediate his people through the um, rather archaic principle the <clears throat> the Dryton principle of leadership where the leader is duty bound to provide for his people not just by deed of ancestry but um, everything that they need it's his responsibility to attain for them so he in fact is serving their needs by mediating for them um, he is not a leader as in his hierarchy is um, superior to theirs he's actually not it's a reversal although he is the one that organizes and um, stresses what must be done it's his duty to bear the responsibility of all that needs to be done so he is serving them in that sacrificial capacity and it was those aspects as well that um, both robert cochran and, and evan john jones wish to stress as as paramount within their tradition um, that were very arcane principles of responsibility of the leader he wasn't just someone that you know i'm the boss now i can tell everyone what to do 
um, I'm the, you know, the, uh, my collar's bigger than yours. It was a case of, no, I, I am here to provide for you. I provide the feast. I provide the, um, the wherewithal. The, I find where we need to meet. I make sure it's safe. I um, look after you. Um, and for that, we will all do this together. You will um, follow my direction, my lead, as it were. Um, but not, not in the sense of um, just having um, authority for the sake of it. It was authority with purpose, an extreme, um, extreme purpose. But nevertheless, it was one that they felt could only be attained if they could really direct people toward those ancient customs. And this, this sense of rulership was so deep. Um, that it did hark back to an ancient system that's, that's sometimes referred to as tanistry. Um, and tanistry in itself is another complex issue within leadership and the way that it you have a spiritual heir that replaces you in the way that Evan John Jones did with Robert Cochran. And that system doesn't necessarily entail a bloodline um, because in the ancient system of Tanistry, you have the most worthy person that's considered to succeed you. So it's a rulership based on merit and worth. And again, these are all not dynastic in the sense that they are um, based in, in the northern tradition, that I think the closest to it, you would look at Hamanya. The, the parallel system of passing on virtue. When a person dies, their, their good luck and good fortune moves of its own volition to, to someone else it feels is worthy and has merit. Um, and this is something that is recognized. Um, the person has, has something other about them. And this was recognized in Robert Cochran. It was recognized in John and it was recognized in um, my partner and in the current magister, um, all of whom have been chosen specifically because they, they were seen to have this, this harmonia, this, this particular power, um, if you like, but it's a virtue. Power is, a, again, a funny word. I'm very wary of particular words and terms, as were both of uh, Roy and John, because they they, they're limiting, they're too limiting in their construction and they don't have a broad enough understanding in the 21st century um, to where they should be placed. So you have to excuse me if I'm rambling a bit, but I'm trying to express something that's so profound and yet um, it's so difficult to explain. He if I follow you correctly, um, it seems to me that the the principles of the divine origin or um, you know the the divine or otherworldly origin passes through into the uh, inherited characteristics yet it is also conferred through a meritocratic selection of the finest uh, for leadership so there's there's the there's the conferral that's through genetic descent 
but then there's also a conferral through um, selective through 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 adoption. That's it. Yes, that's it. Very well said. And you're being very modest yeah. also. Let's not leave you out of this equation <laughs> as well. Um, the, well, the, the maid is chosen um, for something that she seemed to um, possess that's on parallel to the, the Harminya, and it's the matrilineal gaze, um, again, a, a Gallic word that is a potency of fate. Um, it's sometimes pronounced geese as well. Um, and it's akin to a taboo. And it alights upon the, the lady or mistress of the clan. And she therefore is perceived as possessing this. Because without the, the dual um, potency of the, the ham and yar, which is luck, and then the geese, which is fate, um, the clan is not seen to have an equal balance of good fortune or or even virtue so these things are very much um a, again a symbiotic relationship um and they must work in harmony so again the the selection process for that is very um mystical and it's very much based on recognition and if it's recognized as being within a particular person that person assumes that position it again isn't something that's done by choice it's well this person has that so that's it and it's an ancestral virtue then that stays with them for life um, it departs them unless they uh, the magister can um, drop down but that's rare that he would choose to um, stand down um, and it's only an extreme cases where that happens and where it does happen again the ancient system of the harmonyari seemed to move on and again this was a principle that was recognized in ancient cultures if the leader was getting old or frail or otherwise seen as as unsuitable for whatever reasons occur then the the harmonyari said to leave them and move on and that's when a new person is selected generally in those times as a much younger person um, whose fitness and strength was seen as primary virtues to lead the clan to be the best possible leader for the clan um, who had the better chance of survival of course those things aren't necessarily so important today but the strength of personality the virtues of resolve, um, morality, ethics, these things are very, very important. So in a sense, although certain things may, the principles may change, the, the value of the virtue does not. So these things relate to how the tradition is continued, how it is maintained, who maintains it. And the, the lady and mistress of the clan is seen to be endowed and imbued with um, the the lineage of the the dis the the female spirits of ancestry in the same way that the the magister is seen to be supported by the the male warrior aspect of former leaders so <clears throat> these are very very specific roles and again 
now more than ever, I suppose, not necessarily politically correct, and therefore increasingly unpopular <clears throat> by modern standards, but they are again very role specific. And that's the tradition as it as it stands. And these are things that can't change, because it is tradition. Um, and they are the core elements of how the spirit functions in symbiosis with the person. Um, again, this is very, very complex. And although I'm trying to simplify it here, otherwise we would be here all night. These many of these things I have written about um, in various books that I've got through um, in much, much deeper detail. Um, because I can, even though I'm preparing notes here, thanks to your wonderful preparation of the um, questions, I. I still can only briefly go into the very, very complexity of these subjects. Um, again, these are historical traditions and they have the benefaction of elder spirits and those elder spirits continue to um, inspire and teach. And so we, we need to conform to their perspectives of things and their, their perspective of things doesn't change. Um, so it's a very, very precarious relationship, very intense one, but it needs to be um, in harmony. Harmony is at the basis of all um, mystical tradition, um, being opposed to chaos, because chaos is the one thing that it seeks to keep at bay and the one thing that can corrupt and destroy um, all mysticism and all evolution in mysticism. Uh, the mysteries are all about staving chaos at the end of the day. In various ways, by evolving the human spirit, we are able to keep ourselves moving forward and not regressively. So these are the things that I have discussed through various books. Um, so if, if there's anything else you want me to cover on Robert Cochran, the clan, the name, um, please, please ask me now before we move on. Um, the only other thing I'm, I might want to touch on is just a sort of circle back here. I think that one of the reasons that there may be a disconnect for the modern mind is because we're dealing with a world that is almost in contradistinction to the world we're in now, a world where um, chieftainship, kingship, leadership was seen as descended from divine, the divine. And often, for instance, in, in among Europeans, whether we're talking about the Romans, whether we're talking about the, the northerners, um, it was often seen that a, a god or divine being was the progenitor of a certain lineage or even an entire people. And that goes into that whole idea of noblesse oblige, the, the idea that the, the more noble, the more exalted the nature of, of the being, the more there is an obligation of charity and service. Um, and this hierarchical, this hierarchy is based more upon that interior quality of holiness and sacredness and purity and exalted exalted divine uh, inspiration rather than an external worldly authority. And I think that for someone like you who's steeped in this, 
Um, and for people familiar with an archaic worldview, this is understandable, but I think in today's society, there's so much, it's an irony because globalization is leading to fragmentation. Whereas what you've described, the system where we have this nested, these, this nested sense of self and relatedness, it starts with the individual, then you have the family, then you have the clan, then you have the tribe, then you have the nation, and then you have the people. And this actually leads to greater social cohesion and health um, and a connection in, almost, in an almost hermetic sense of as above, so below. It does. It does completely. It's it's um, a very hermetic unit um, in in its reciprocity and its relationship with the other and and everyone within that circle. Um, <clears throat> the again the principles of suzerainty are so very different from those of sovereignty, and this noblesse oblige um, falls into the realm of suzerainty so perfectly. Um, and again, within the context of the clan, um, that is reflected. Um, so in that respect, the, the clan itself will always remain aligned to a tutelary figure um, through the leaders who represent that. And that is the principle of suzerainty. Um, traditionally, suzerainty is best explained as something that's associated with feudalism and all the attendant principles of vassalage and liege lords, as you, as you just mentioned. And effectively, this means that um, whereas once a lord and lady uh, would demonstrate a primary autonomy over those aligned to them in troth, it was their sacrosanct and mutually obligatory premise that declared a troth to those elder spirits of those people, as you say, that, that reach back to ancestry, to some um, now deified being um, that's subs related just to that one subsection of people. It doesn't necessarily relate to anyone else outside that clan or tribal structure. It's theirs and theirs alone. So suzerainty is to do with clanship and internal autonomy. Um, and its, its leaders are independent, um, yet each one, despite that independence, is to some level beholden to a higher lord as it goes up the feudal chain, all abiding by the rule of Frith. So it, again, it comes back to the relationship between them all and to the greater hierarchy which exists to which they all conform. Now, sovereignty on the alternative to that denies each leader their role and authority because all are subservient to the one um, so there is no individuality everything is a totality um, as you're just saying and this is um, something that's so of the modern world where the camaraderie of kinship is as alien as it is incomprehensible um, in the modern times um, the distinction of sovereignty again lies in the specific bond between the people and their leader that sovereignty offers them. Now, during the Middle Ages, of course, the offer of fealty was made to your direct liege lord rather than to a sovereign that was so nebulous it, it was not even considered. It was a direct relationship to someone you knew in exchange for their protection 
and spiritual leadership. The monarch, such as it there was, was well outside that dominion. Um, but liege, each liege lord eventually rose up to um, become subservient to that monarch. Um, and that's when we got an overall kingship and it dissolved the feudal lordship on, on an individual level. And that is what um, the traditional craft was getting back to that before all that disappeared um, <clears throat> while it was, and it disappeared into the trades and guilds because that was the only place it could survive again within the family unit. Um, and those traditions and initiations and rites continued through those guilds systems because they had no other place to go because everything had disappeared. So the bond is at the heart of all of this relationship, this spiritual relationship and this familial relationship. Um, it is a collective within that shared ancestry. Um, and in the fullest sense, this is the sense of Gifu, where the egregore is to be understood as the group soul, as a sentient heritage of cumulative spiritual ancestry with and beyond any form of location. Uh, of course, a sovereign holds no such continuity in bond or spirit. So therefore, we, we can say that we draw from that ancestral lineage that is not centered in the land, but of its people. A sovereign is of the land, um, a suzerain is of the people, wherever those people are. Um, it is irrelevant where geographically those people are, whereas um, we are assigned a sovereign nation Therefore, it's of the land. If you're on that land, you are considered a sovereign nation people. Um, that's not so within suzerainty. You are, you can be nomadic and wander everywhere, but you're still a collective. You're still a clan. You're still a people, no matter how disparate. So our cosmology, therefore, negates the principle of geocentricity. We are not geocentric. We are not aligned to a specific land, though we do, of course, work with the land. And that's the difference. Um, we are not tied to the land, we work with it. Um, and therefore we are free spirits that can move around in different places and be introduced to different um, land-wise, different land vetter, different spirits. Although we always, always seek um, permission and build up a reciprocity and a rapport before beginning to engage them. Of course, we do have particular places where um, we turn to again and again, just as all um, nomadic peoples have done, they have areas that remain seasonally active. Um, and those spirits of those, those regions are particularly potent at those times. So you would return purposefully to that region and this is why we move around in the landscape um, whilst also recognizing those of hearth um, that are there permanently as residents but even that originally the hearth was within nomadic people something that was picked up and put on horseback and moved the, the, even the hearth was a mobile unit um, it may have been the same hearth that was put down and offerings put on it, but it was still mobile. Everything can be mobile. It doesn't have to be 
geocentric. It doesn't have to be tied to a particular spot permanently. So we see that a people subsumes its comprehension of the other and of elder spirits through evolution and progress. We're not a geocentric monarchy that is tied to its dedications in in that particular regime. It doesn't reside on how that regime falls or stands because it has no relevance to that outside world. It's entirely insular and works entirely on, on how its own people are engaged. So any faith that is rooted in the land is tied to its ruling monarch. Um, if you think back to Henry VIII, for instance, how he changed from one faith to another overnight to suit his purpose. So in that respect, faith is at the mercy of war or conquest when tied to a monarch. Um, whereas when it's not geocentric, not monarchical, not of the sovereign, but of the suzerain, it stays no matter the war or conquest, um, no matter the movement that faith is bound because those people are together. It's entirely distinct to those people, um, which again is why often um, nomads were considered outlaws and wanderers because they alone retain the faith of their ancestors. Again, to repeat, I follow the gods of my father's father. Um, so the virtue is of the line, it isn't of the land and not literally, not mythically. Um, again, this is why Gnostics have a history of being traveling mendicants, bound by no land or state. Um, and when they failed to observe it, they became victims to virtual genocide. Once they thought they could settle somewhere, that's it, they became targets. Um, but even then they were very, very hard to, to destroy. It, it, they became subject to that. And in the same way, now when people expose themselves to becoming settled somewhere permanently, they become the same sort of target. Um, you, you're easily identifiable as a person of that place. Whereas when you are in shadow, when you are seen to be nebulous and move around, you're a little bit more difficult to pinpoint your, your spirits and your the virtues that empower you are more difficult to get to. It's a much less easily destructible environment. And so it's much more easy to protect. So this is a profound emphasis on suzerainty as an overall cultural context um, that again is so dependent on this reciprocity between a leader and his people and the obligations and responsibilities and the rites and rituals and customs that are centered on that execution are again so um, bound up in morality and ethics and the constraints of honorable behavior of privilege and of the privilege that bears upon you that is incumbent upon you to have that responsibility duty and reciprocity to your people to enliven, inspire and ennoble them. Um, 
this is the way that your entire be being and your people can move forward they can evolve and become better um, survive um, and improve their entire spirituality and improve on their physical well-being and this is as you say the heart of the noblesse oblige it's an obligation of those that have the wherewithal to share with those of their people to ensure that everyone um, has access to that um, ability to enrich and maintain a better sense of being, a better spirituality um, that affords the whole a balance that can stave chaos and anarchy through the humility and dignity of service. Um, mystical guidance is, is something, therefore, that's it's expressed through allegorical tenet um, and the aspirations that are encouraged and nurtured from that um, are applied through the experiential methodologies <clears throat> that are aligned to higher virtues. So each individual then within that clan, within that people, within that tribe become a journeyman upon their own individual sacred pilgrimage while retained and protected within the whole with the familial system. So we're each individuals working together as a collective. And it's that that beautiful symbiosis that that works so perfectly. Um, and that in itself is part of the original Gnostic system, um, individual teachers, individual leaders, all becoming the um, center where those that wish to learn gravitate toward them and they become bonded in that that search for something more more than they have more than the need to survive it's um, an excellence that the teacher is duty bound to impart to those he attracts beautifully said and uh, i truly appreciate uh, everything that you've just outlined, I have to say, it's unusual for me, but many of the things that you've been discussing, I've been having a very strong emotional reaction to, um, emotional response to, and um, it, it, I would say that one thing that occurs to me while you're discussing this is how similar this is almost to how in a family, um, different members of the family will manifest uh, the, tr the family traits in a different constellation according to their individuality. And if you consider that within the context of the divine euhemeristic root of, of the lines that you're describing, then each individual member of a clan, for instance, would, would reveal different divine attributes or aspects through their inheritance, and in, in, in by looking at all of them together as a whole, you can gain a picture of the ancestor who is also divine. Yes, yes, exactly so. And this is one of the the wonderful things I have found um, being within the clan is that the people who come to it each bring their own incredible virtue and sense of something so remarkable 
that fits in so perfectly with everyone else's and there's no clashing there's everyone has a, their own individual key and their own individual expression and purpose and what they bring to that collective is just enhances the whole exponentially um, it isn't again it's so different to wearing wicker everyone is taught um, tarot for instance or everyone is taught astrology and everyone learns everything we all you know you all have to be good at that or that or that in in the clan there is none of that one person might be a profoundly um, wonderful um, herbalist someone else may be an astrologer someone else may be um, marvelous at leading ritual someone else may be um, good at incantation someone else may be fantastic at overtoning and chanting and so everyone has that quality that enhances everyone else by their being in amongst them so we each learn from each other rather than all learning the same thing we each are led forward by that gift that that person has inherently within them that they exceed naturally at and it's it's brought out and encouraged um so that they can excel in that and then everyone else can learn from that as well so the the collective is is remarkable it, it, it's, it's just breathtaking sometimes now uh, moving forward with that i wanted to ask you within the context of everything we've been discussing how does this relate to ancestral veneration and and the and generally the role of the spirits of the dead within the tradition okay um ancestral veneration again is as all of these questions are remarkably well constructed but the ancestral veneration is something that's very very much misunderstood um, it is very distinct from worship. Veneration is, is a reverence. It's not a worship. That, that's first and foremost quite important. It is a priority. Um, and in our particular clan, because it was named as the clan of Tubal-Cain by Robert Cochrane, he is the foremost, most revered ancestor. Um, we do have others. Um, that are known to have existed before him within the context of the tradition, but he is the founder of that name that we are aligned to. Um, so therefore, he is the most revered. Um, so it it does go back further than him, but there are he is the one at which we we focus on because he is closest to us as well in in being in making an impact in what we do. So we are a cult of ancestors and not a cult of the personality. That is also something that's important. And within the context of the clan, there is something that's called the old covenant. And this is a covenant between the living and the dead. And it binds its people within a specific kinship that's again formed as a cohesive unit for its survival and continuity. Um, the clan's continuity, therefore, 
So exemplary figures such as Robert Cochrane become the object lesson for others to follow or to aspire to both in life and in death. So everyone therefore looks to an exemplary figure as a focus. So this is, this is how we perceive ancestral veneration. It's a specifically Northern perspective where the dead become ambassadors for the living among their heirs as legends to aspire to and among the dead ancestors to propitiate protection and prosperity for their kin. Um, now hero worship of course relates to figures of legend and renown and of course in the northern tradition reputation is everything. If you have no reputation you, you haven't aspired to anything of worth in your life therefore you are not worthy to follow because you have left no worthy mark. So this again is a particularly important aspect where we seek to emulate the strongest and the wisest who are lauded. Um, so you, remarkability is something that is perceived as being blessed with the genius of the other, not in the sense that they are gods, because that is nonsense, but something remarkable that can lead you to be inspired, to move um, forward again, always to progress and be better by following the better examples, exemplary um, virtues and people that have reflected those virtues in their deeds. Um, it's, it's only by emulating the best that we can be better. Um, so reputation, matters what you do matters what you leave for others matters so the ancestors that we remember the best are those that are the most pronounced that did the most for us um, in terms of how we can move forward um, all ancestors are remembered no one is left out but the ones that are particularly venerated as you said are the ones that receive the most um, attention because they are the ones that obviously have the most to offer. So this is not um, expressed or um, engaged in a necromantic way. Um, I think Cochrane made that very clear in a letter to Bill Gray. This is not necromancy. Um, we are not summoning up um, strange spirits. Um, for ridiculous questions and answers syndromes we seek their engagement and inspiration we seek their influence in our lives we invite them into ourselves and our lives for an inner dialogue we regard them as teaching spirits and in that sense they become divine ancestors in the sense where divine means um superior otherness rather than divine as in god again it's it's a sense of that mystical otherness that's a that's a superior state of being something that's passed over mm, i'm sorry to interrupt no, sorry. i was just going to say it's very reminiscent of um almost the neoplatonic view of of the hero Yes. As well, as well as just uh, maybe even just the Christian idea of the saint. Yes. Yes, it is. The superior other. Absolutely. 
Yes, it is. It is a, a specific genius um, that that person was seen to embody in life, that they were still embodying in death. And they've because they've been touched by that divine essence, they are of it and continue to partake of it and um, are able to share it and pass it on to others who engage with them even in death. Um, this is how earnestly our ancestors realized a holistic interconnected symbiosis um, which becomes uh, naturally it's a combined necessity for the welfare of humankind um, if i may just read a quote here cochrane himself said <clears throat> witchcraft is not primarily concerned with messages or mortality gained from the dead it is concerned with the action of gods and gods upon man and man's position spiritually. So right there is encapsulated the heart of the missive and the mission, which is to connect with the other to move forward, to gain spirituality with spirit, through spirit. It's not about did great Aunt Jenny leave the kettle on when she went to bed last week or what was the name of, I don't know, the horse that that won the Grand National. It's not about mundane matters on any level of being. It's purely about how can we get to the, the spirituality of the core of what it is to be alive. And by alive, I don't mean um, not dead in the sense of no longer here on this plane. I mean alive as in spiritual otherness or here in the flesh. Fully alive is to be in the, the flux of, of being in that stream that is perpetually feeding and is fed by everything else that engages with it. So it's um, a symbiosis that transcends the construct of the realms that consciousness imposes on our logic it's it's beyond all of that so it's the ability to reach out into those realms and gather real useful information gnosis it's wisdom it's specifically wisdom oriented it's not mundane it's everything that isn't mundane everything that we need to survive mentally in all realms once the flesh has decayed because only through um, moving forward in in spirit do we truly become immortal um, with a cognitive sense of awareness of who we are that that's getting well out of of where we are what you ex um, wish to discuss here as a venerated custodian of the dead um, the role of the spirits of the dead therefore um, is to hone the sense of will within an individual um, in accord with um, the daemonic guidance which again comes back to what you said there about plato um, who is very much um, into the genius of the, the demonic guidance <clears throat> and so we seek solutions to given problems through the direct contact with spirit 
rather than through messages um, via so-called mediums. The action of the self is stressed repeatedly um, as something that's, that's poetic even, because it, the gods speak to us poetically because through poetic inference is how they teach. It's all through riddles and puzzles and it's, it's obscure because we have to work for it because that's how we are pulled forward. If it's given, the answer is given, you've learned nothing, you wouldn't know how to retread that path. It's only by forging the steps can you attain them again when you need to. So the work is divinely inspired through others, through the poetry and riddles, through the proverbs that are laced with inherent mysticism and profound wisdom. Because each and every person is a link in the chain back to truth. Um, and as I said, truth is the ultimate form of expression that would be the closest thing to a Godhead. And that pathway toward that truth, back to that truth, is found through remembrance, through the process of anamnesis, which is re-remembering. And it's those riddles that force us to re-remember the steps that we took before um, so that we can tread them again. Um, and this is again what Cochrane promoted as a, a prioritized tenet of his faith, um, expressing it as a complex philosophy. Now he, he presented it as um, the faith as a vehicle for revelation and union through the Gnosis of Truth. He presented his faith as a philosophy devoted to Gnosis and attained through the nature of the mystical experience. So for him, the mysteries then are about the awareness of the self as a product of the divine. It's an awareness that generates change and it occurs repeatedly to effect a complete restructuring of the life's pattern or template um, until we're finally released from the cyclical bonds of being in material form. Because that mystical perception is something he added is based upon the fact that we go to God, not that God comes to us. We cannot summon that divine to us. We have to make the effort. We go forward to it and we can only go through to it in steps at a time. And that is why we engage spirit and ancestors to push us forward in that um, presentation toward the Godhead, towards truth. We can be propelled to it only through action. Um, it, it, sitting there, invoking it to us, you can do it till the cows come home. That's never going to happen. You have to do the work. Uh, and again, this is something that Evan John Jones said that you know the people believe in our ancestors and it doesn't matter whether they were heathen or christian it it is irrelevant what faith they they had as an overlying faith what matters is the the virtues they expressed within that faith and that in itself is the faith of the people it's the the noblesse oblige the faith it's the belief it's the motivation, the devotion, all of that uh, becomes one 
one symbiotic act. And those are the, the ways in which the magic of Tubal Cain blends with the, the patronage, if you like, of magic and prophecy and poetry that are the, the mainstay of the Wodinic and the Odinic principles of, of Northern um, belief structures. This is where, you, if you like, you get Woden blending with Tubal Cain as an ethos that comes together through that extreme all-encompassing divinity, that absolute power of the one that is filtered down through, if you like, a tribal figure, which is what Woden was specifically. Um, so his abilities are the patronage of magic, prophecy and poetry that are then filtered through. So these become um, focused through bones often. Um, they the bones become the locus as a blessed vessel, um, spirit houses. This is one manifestation of that principle. But again, that's obviously so much deeper and wider than can be explained here. Um, casting the compass is something that is thrown out to include the veneration of ancestry. Um, and at specific times and specific rites, that is, is um, engaged on an even deeper level, <clears throat> a very sacred level, um, to tap into more ancient mystery religions, um, to divine is literally to engage with that magical other. It isn't just a process of who's going to win the lottery. It's, it's an expression that seeks the truth. It's always pushing to gain at the heart of that truth. <clears throat> and um, Cochrane stressed the imperatives of both poetic and mythic visioning as the true keys of a real seer, um, not um, the ability to forecast the weather or mundane things. Nothing should be related to the mundane because it's all about the higher principle. Because if you get the higher principle right, then the mundane takes care of itself. It feeds back into the mundane. But if you halt it at the mundane and focus only on the mundane, <clears throat> you never move forward. And in that sense, there's <clears throat> very, the very primitive rites, rites, sorry, losing my voice, <clears throat> known as tapping the bone, is, is, is an, an oracular practice. It's very much concerned with, with speaking um, your um, expression, how you want to say something to the ancestors, but it's just a, a method of getting their attention. Um, and in itself, the rhythmic tapping of the bone can enhance your own sense of trance and you can enter into an oracular state. But generally, other rites focusing on the skull specifically um, are quite ceremonial and they become the mythic visioning for the true seer who is seeking beyond an oracular practice, who is seeking beyond the mundane. 
Um, so they get very, very complex and very involved. And within the use of the skull, um, we, we then come into the ancient forms of ancestral veneration, which focused around the, the great mounds, but also in the caves. Now, again, the cave is a very different um, demograph to the mound, very different topography too, very different um, purposes where you would enter either a cave or a mound as a place of communion. Um, both of them engage the otherworldly and ancestral dead. And again, these are often seen the same in some traditions. In ours, we don't see them as the same. Um, this again causes a lot of confusion in references that certain people will come to and they don't understand the distinction because there isn't a distinction made between the underworld of the cave and the holy mound, um, one being where you go to the ancestral dead and the other, the otherworldly fae. Um, and it's the mound that takes you to um, the place of origin, to the ancestors of your origin <clears throat> specifically, rather than just the ancestors of your place, which will be in a very different, very different um, scenario and fulfill different purposes. So again, you would have different skulls for both of those. Um, and again, the, the passageway to these is all bound up with the terms that we use for the quick and the dead. And the quick, of course, belongs to the mound and the dead is the cavern or underworld because one one exists um, within the context of um, the spirits of the dead being locked into place and the other is the free movement of spirit um, that goes back to origin that's um, often even a mythical place doesn't even have an origin in reality Sometimes um, those ancestors have come from myth, from heroic tales. And the, the spirit forms that have gathered around those exist in those places. So oh, that's a um, very, very, very brief um, explanation. I hope that wasn't uh, confused. But both traditions... Um, come together and the roots <clears throat> many traditions will focus on one of those either the catonic or the the holy rarely do traditions draw from both we do as it happens but not many do that they will tend to orient themselves more to one or the other um <clears throat> In between, so I wanted. Sorry, carry on. Well, I'm. I apologize for interrupting. No, no, it's fine. Um, so I wanted to. Uh, I could. <laughs> we could probably do an entire episode on this particular point. It's so deep and so intriguing. But I, I, well, with the time we have left, I definitely want to explore a couple of other things with you. Um, specifically, one of them is the 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 role of the feminine in your tradition and in the iteration of 
the Gnostic dimensions of your tradition. Uh, I know tr often in Gnosticism, we see that the feminine, rather than taking the maligned role of the established religions, actually the feminine has a redemptive character and a, a salvific character that imparts knowledge. And I was wondering if that's if that's holds true in in your tradition. Mm. That's uh yes it it does. Now the thing is the divine feminine for us is instructive um, but it's not seen as redemptive, at least not directly. Um now given that the tradition that I'm involved with the clan is its whole purpose as a mystery religion is to reorganize the misaligned principles that impede spiritual growth. In other words, we resmelt the individual into gold um, because the goal of true magic and religion is not ritual alone, which in itself is only a tool. Um, therefore, those that live only for myth and superstition will be open to deception and we're all about truth. So truth is the thing that um, preserves faith. So the underground stream um, is in itself one that encourages the security of personal freedom and personal experience. Now, again, this in, in Gnosticism, um, the, the Gnostic schools all have um, an instructive ability <clears throat> and to some extent a redemptive one. Now, although Cochrane makes a few generic references to Sophia throughout his works, those works merely skirt around the deeper concepts held within the faith, where all ritual is perceived as prayer. Every act is one of faith, every act is one of instruction, and it's the work itself that is redemptive rather than the feminine channel for that. Now, having said that, throughout the Eddas, <clears throat> the divine feminine weaves um, quite an intriguing layer to the more familiar mythic and historical aspects. We have Iduna, who is the bearer of the gift of immortality. She's also linked to the mead of poetry through Bragi, her spouse. Uh, Gunloth is implied as the mother of Bragi who is um, hinted as the previous guardian of the poetic mead, um, which is the spiritual sustenance and succor of the people. Uh, Gunnod and Iduna are mutable guardians of life, and their knowledge of magic and of enchantment is associated with earthly bounty and abundance of life, um, being theirs to impart. Now, if we look at the Havamal text, which is something I looked at in great depth in the Hanged God, um, we can see that Odin's literal deep-seated relationship with Gunnlod is an involvement that's integral to his um, winning of the Mead of Poetry, which is wisdom, the spiritual sustenance. So it was hers alone, and he gained it from her. And he gains his Gullum Stoli, the Golden Throne, from her. Um, the Well of Weird is again something that's um, the custodians are female. Nike, the Conqueror, the Beautiful, she's victorious, the Peacemaker. 
she gave Prometheus the gift of fire, who then in turn gave it to humankind at her behest. So Cochrane recognised the innovative, cataclysmic dynamic of that virtue that's invoked through the, the egregore um, that is divinely feminine. So it is perceived there as instructive, but not necessarily redemptive, because redemptive is an individual process of acquisition of the, that wisdom. So yes, the wisdom itself indirectly becomes redemptive, but not so much directly. Um, in the in folklore, we have Namar, um, the sister of, of Tubal Cain, who also um, passes on wisdom to Tubal Cain. Odin receives his from all of his mighty women, Loki from Angerboda. And even in the Adaic poem, um, Baldur's Drama, Odin requires the prophecy from the Vola that he needs to summon um, to, to decide where to go and what to do. And he needs that permission from Hela to enter her realm. So all of these, the, the officiating wisdom, the directives, the permissions, all lay in the aegis of the female, um, <clears throat> ultimately. But it's the, the male in our tradition that actually leads the people forward with that knowledge. She provides it and it's it's mediated then through to him and he takes the the whole forward so in that sense it is the magister that take, takes on the burden and the aegis of that responsibility it, it, it is him that is becomes the sin eater in the rites for interest in, instance at candlemas he is the one that that needs to produce some redemptive element on a mundane level um, so that we can be dis dispensed with um, things that impede or inhibit growth. Sin is not seen as something that is wrong or bad. It's just something that's an impedance. It's what's in the way that we can't get past. So he uses her wisdom to perceive what that is and then takes it upon himself in his duty to diffuse it's it's his responsibility and duty to do that so in the sense of redemption i would say it's a male orientation but it is under her behest her direction so through her gifts um everything is then made clear um clean unable to move forward much as the um, the warriors, if you like, in, in Valhall, where we have um, the, the beautiful Hydron, the goat on the roof there, who from whom whom's others the need flows to sustain the warriors in Valhall. So she's sustaining them. And in that same sense, that wisdom is sustaining us here. So they are made whole again to live in perpetuity. To live and fight another day and that cycle of death and rebirth is intrinsically tied to the cycle of regeneration of our own spiritual rebirth that's also ultimately a physical rebirth so in that sense um cochran saw the magister's responsibility as that mediator as i say it's his 
responsibility to correct humankind's propensity to err, to fall short. Um, if we can only face these things and move forward if we have that point of address. And from that, we attain that point of truth, that purity of thought and action. And that itself is again expressed through spiritus, through breath, generated by, um, by the highest love, by compassion. Again, this is mentioned in the Candlemas Rite. It's very specific that it's aimed towards grace through compassion. And it's something that each person achieves through the most humbling and profound experience of um, breathing out what is perceived to be one's sin, one's error of impediment, um, what it is that is holding us back from attaining that Gnostic sense of truth. So again, it comes back to each individual is an eternal seeker on that pilgrim's path. Um, and within this privileged mythos, we aspire to a collective learned history that is facilitated by her wisdom and his um, protection. Um, and again, this is something that I think Cochrane tried to explain once to Bill Gray, um, despite his disdain for labels. Um, and he tried to say, you know, this is, we find the closest approximation to these expressions through the Reaper as Saturn, the Mediator as Hermes, and the Mother of All, the Gnostic Cognate of Barbello through Hecate in the Trimorphic Protonoia. Um, and he specifically said that within the disciplines of the faith, man may offer devotion to the gods and receive certain knowledge of their existence by participation in something of the perfected nature of Godhead, recalling that both within and without, which is most true. Wisdom thus becomes the womb of everything in the silence. And it's in, the, it's in that specific silence that the divine Sophia, as Protonoia, pronounces herself through all the characteristics that Cochrane assumes in the figure of Hecate. And she says, I dwell within the silence as time and as fate being the laws of chaos that surrounds every one of them. So we can see that as the mother of all thought and wisdom, she carries the full virtues of forethought as providence of fate. Again, the, the virtue that the maid has to reflect. Um, she's the first thought in the eternal now and the afterthought as hindsight and memory. Again, these are reflected in the Odinic mythos through um, Huya and Mugen, the two ravens. Um, so all of these principles are seen to parallel the northern traditions. There is a great mystical and Gnostic um, parallel within the Odinic cultus. Although we aren't specifically Odinic, we are of the northern mysteries. Um, Odin himself has a complete mythology that can be, um, if, if understood, on that level, seen um, to parallel very, very specific Gnostic elements. Um, compassion itself 
um, that's mentioned in this whole process of expiation is the, a cover for the ruthlessness of total truth. This is something that Cochrane expounded um, because he believed that her works were full of goodness and also darkness. So she had this incredible dichotomy and ability to be all things. And yet both of those are deemed compassionate. There's one that's compassion in ambivalence and there's one that's compassion in caring. And that is the truth. Um, and it's understanding that truth that allows us to shatter the fetters of illusion and remove fate and overcome fate. And this again was, was one of his greatest tenets um, of expression that people still admire and are moved by. Um, and I find one of the most wonderful little bits, uh, and I can't remember where I found this, but she says, Sophia is expressing, every bond that I loosed from you, every chain from the underworld I broke, these things bound upon my people detaining them, these high walls of darkness I overthrew and broke those gates, barred by they who lack compassion, locked by the pitiless ones, those I broke and shattered. So it's that profoundness there, right there relates directly to compassion because the love for her through that compassion elevates everyone. So it is um, an esteem that we can aspire to. So in that sense, as I say, through that wisdom, through that awareness that she is these things, we achieve some sense of redemption, but it's not acquired directly through her, it's mediated through the principle of duty and obligation and sacrifice and humility that the magister um, encompasses that allows us to to embrace those greater those greater tenets that she represents and by doing so we all become the child of promise and that child of promise is how we evolve uh, because at that stage um, that we try and um, work forward every Candlemas um, building on the previous year, we, we see the shackles of, of uh, impediment dissolve um, because what, all that is left is your oath because the oath is the spoken word as a prayer. Um, it is the, the, the incantation that is the hero's quest that becomes the destiny of the warrior um and this is where romance and legend are fused to hold forever in memory all the deeds and beliefs of those ancestral giants that we aspire to be and that premise is referred to by cochrane as the divine muse she who is all destiny for through her gifts will all signs and symbols be known all sounds will receive the names of the guides along the way that um, she instructs through the way of silence the value of creation from silence and repose that is the mystery beyond death she 
is the one we declare ourselves open to through spirit. And spirit is seen as something inside. Um, it's not an external thing, so it's very much an inward sigh, an inward exhalation. It's a principle that we feel gets the closest to traditional Gnosticism. Um, for the one, the truth exists in the silence of its own vibration, that primal sound uttered by the inner spirit that reverberates outside of itself, but within. Um, and I guess to round that up, the trimorphic protonoia thus gifts the trinity of language through the voice, which is the father, which is Saturn, sound, which is mother, which is Hecate, and the word, which is the sun, who is Hermes. And so you've got this, this divine triplicity that is really her, but is separated into the traditional modalities um, that relates still to um, a culture that we can base reality in. It isn't just a, a higher premise, we can relate it to a lived tradition. And it's the lived tradition that's, that's the heart of its survival and the heart of its, its um, tenacity, I suppose, and its integrity um, to, to perceive itself as something that has a right to exist and continue. Um, irrespective of whatever else is going around it because it has this this absolute core that's unchanging in in the same way that um truth is unchanging although plato might disagree with that um so therefore that is the the gnostic language is the greatest mystery that's acquired through sacred silence and in that we have the mask prayer that comes at the end of our most profound rites, where we, at the very end of the mask prayer, say, of course, and in the name of the All Father, the Dark and Bright Twins, and the Three Mothers, whose spirit moves all. So again, there is a recognition that it's her spirit that moves all things, but she moves through him and the Dark Twins, Dark and Bright Twins. That was uh, beautifully articulated and uh, I, I believe much deeper than what someone would imagine uh, that they would find in, in a tradition of witchcraft. Um, I, I really do appreciate the uh, idea of participating in the, the divine principles uh, kind of as a reflection of those principles. I, th I think that's really uh, a strain of wisdom that goes back, you know, to the beginning. It's very interesting to hear you uh, to talk about them in this way. And I was wondering on a more practical level, and you are touching on it here, but going back way to the beginning of when we started talking, you had mentioned um, while contrasting kind of the Gardarian approach to, to things, the more mystical approach in your tradition, this, um, this idea of the focus on uh, movement and, and rest or silence and movement, and you've been kind of touching on it here, but on a, on a practical level, how does that look um, in ritual? Yes, uh, rather than um, lots of, of movement, which you tend to get in, in Wicca, um, where they're, because they're focusing on trying to, what they perceive as building up a, a power base, we have 
very um, profound moments of silence and stillness. I mean, the whole thing comes together rather like a, a choreographed ballet in some respects, but it isn't. It's entirely in, intuitive and inspirational. And there's no, no set piece to you stand over there and do this and you stand there. It's entirely inspirational as the spirit takes the person um, for, for the most part. I mean, there are some specific things that we all do, um, but then it's, it's free movement or whatever after that. And we have robes, we, we move as shadows in the dark. We have very little light, there is no script. Um, there are a few moments of expression where we might chant overtone or drum. There's some sound there. And then it's silence. It's an inward introspection um, that's appealing to that outer spirit um, to conjoin with the inner spirit um, in that plane of silence. Um, and this often takes place as well behind a mask. And the mask is not for the benefit of those who are looking, which is often the purpose of a mask to disguise. It's to deflect the inner self um, in, inwardly. And what is worn is a mask of the inner self. It is um, an expression of what is the spirit of that person um, on, a, on the pretext of the filia, if you're familiar with that, um, that term. It's about the, the power within that person. So the, the mask expresses that and then by wearing it, it's pressed back, pushed back into that person. <clears throat> um, so it contains them. So there's that silence, movement, stillness, repose, um, some sound. And all of it is, is often in shadow with, with a fire. And that just enhances the enigmatic movement of shadow um, where things are partially concealed and everyone is focused on themselves. Um, and we move in unison and, and everyone seems to know where they are and what they're doing because everyone's so focused in that moment and all we are often aware of is the thud of the staff on the ground um, until it stops and then we know that we're all in repose so it's it's quite um it's it's completely motivated by whatever's leading us in that moment it's entirely taken over by spirit fascinating thank you so this brings something to mind that I want to touch on before uh, moving on to a couple of our final points in the greater sort of Indo-Aryan tradition, uh, which extends into Europe, but also is present in Persia and even India. There's this idea of the Dana or the, um, like you said, the Philgia even the Valkyrie as related to the goddess or goddesses of fate. And it seems to have a direct, it seems to be a dimension of what you were just speaking about regarding the goddess. Is this correct? Or would you say this is accurate? I should say. Um, I'm not sure what you're asking. Could you just repeat what your actual question is, please? 
Sure. Sorry, I'm I'm in a little bit of a trance here. The the so the each person has an individual. So say in the Zoroastrian Persian tradition, a, each person has a feminine spirit uh, associated with their soul, which is um, their own personal fate. Yes. But it, it, she's almost it's almost like an angelic figure or a Valkyrie like figure at the same time. And it seems that, for instance, under the goddess Freya, there were similar figures, say, in the northern tradition. And I was wondering if this is a dimension of the fate component of the goddess that you were describing. Does that make sense? It does make perfect sense. And, and yes, I would agree that it is. Um, each person does have several layers to their um, spiritual self that has different um, functions and one of those is definitely the the philia and another is the dis the the actual divine ancestor um and these things do definitely stay with that person from their birth to their to their death um, guiding and um leading them forward uh informing them and protecting them to some degree um and those are outward manifestations of their personality um, the philia is, is somewhat different, but has an aspect of that person that's compatible with them, um, but not necessarily of the same nature, um, but can be seen um, to reflect that person. Um, again, these have different um, understandings in different traditions that will see them differently. There is no consensus on what these things are. Um, our information on them historically is very sketchy. And I think that what people know of them is gained through personal gnosis um, to a large extent. Um, therefore, it is reliant very much upon the tradition that you're working as to how they will be seen to fit in with that. But overall, they, they are definitely something that emanates from the feminine sense of fate and destiny. Um, they are with us as partners in our, our life's plan towards the achievement of that destiny. Thank you, that was uh, very helpful. So we, I wanna kind of focus in right on Tubalcane and you know, we see the name mentioned and but but frequently there's not much of a focus on who Tubal Cain actually is, especially outside of say the mythological or mythological biblical narrative or even the Masonic narrative. Um, but within the context of the cunning craft and in your tradition, would you say that the fire and smith mysteries of Hephaestus, Athena, and Prometheus are relevant or even connected to the mysteries of Tubal Cain? They, they are. Um, to some extent, there is an, an overriding um, generic sense to who Tubal Cain is, um, because he's such a great figure of history and myth. Um, however, how he's then generally um, perceived, again, depends upon each tradition. And within my tradition, Tubal Cain is obviously a, a god of the smithcraft. But it's, it's not just the smithcraft as in smelting of metallurgy. It is this, the craft of smithing the person 
it um, I think I touched on this earlier it's about molding the person crafting their course of action and evolution it's very much about honing their virtues and skills through gnosis and through evolution it's always about propelling them forwards it's it's the universal architect very masonic i know but it's a tutelary spirit that is a creative aegis it's um, a spirit of creation and origin because um, as a, an old form of being he is in essence considered to be the lord of all manifest things in all forms so it makes perfect sense to see him as a totemic figure um, as a point of origin of how we can be formed and continually reformed um, as a symbolic essence of that shared divinity so when we say at a folkloric level we are the hunter the hunted and the roebuck in the thicket are one and the same they're referring to old tubal cain as an aspect of that hunter of the hunted and of the roebuck in the thick thicket which is the sacrificial element which all of which manifests within the individual we are at one the same um, collectively and simultaneously with that spirit and each other because we as we go through life we partake of the virtue of all of those um, potencies we can be the hunter and the hunted and the sacrifice that's in the thicket that's that's just put there that has no other purpose than to be sacrificial offering so we end up being all three in different stages of our life and possibly um, after two so we have different functions and different forms different purposes because they each teach um, a particular value and virtue that we need to move forward without being all those things collectively one and the same relative to the ancient origin of the spiritual form of those things we cannot possibly know them in the sense of knowing gnosis and wisdom um, we have to work through all the levels of our being uh, which is to say we have to be diametrically opposed to everything we think we are to engage with the true shadow self and the true being of the um, soul the spirit and mind and body the dichotomy of the differentials between how the emotions change in each of those forms and the purpose of how those forms then relate to how we progress as a being as a total being depends upon how we make that um, symbiosis work within each individual so um, I guess therefore Tubal Cain is such a total being um, that goes way beyond general smithcraft which is why um, often when we've been asked well why not Wayland why not Hephaestus why not Athena 
Um, this is why, because there's only tubal cain. That is the name, the name itself etymologically, as well as its original function in all of its triplicity, um, was seen to encompass all levels of being, whereas the others don't don't have that. They are of this world only. Thank you very, very much for that. Um, so to wrap up, I wanted to just touch on Odin with you. I know you're doing some very, in my opinion, very important uh, published work, uh, a trilogy that has been many years in the making on Odin and his mysteries. And I just wanted to ask you, we've spoken about the dead. We've spoken about um, divine ancestry and the sort of interconnection between these different aspects and what is the relationship between odin and the dead in this context of everything we've been discussing here ah uh, again um this is a very broad subject um very deep um and very very complex which is as you say, why it's taken me so long to put it all together. And, and even now it's continuing in well beyond the original trilogy into um, the Northern Otherworld series of six books because it is so vast and so important, as you say, to, to properly get to the, the nux of it all. And the relationship between Odin and the dead is again dependent on what level you are perceiving him where you're coming into looking at what he does and on the the, the superficial level the folkloric level it's it's very much well he uses the dead for divination um, and as far as that goes that's that's correct within the mythos of his of his role um, but within the created mythos generated by say the medieval edders it suggests much more um, of his relationship with the dead in that he cultivated the best of the warrior elite as his personal army, um, which he was avidly gathering to, again, hold back the ensuing forces of chaos. His whole purpose in gathering that army was to hold back chaos. Come the day, they needed to be there and it needed to be the best of the best that could do it. Um, only they would be good enough. In folklore, of course, his relationship with the dead extends to his encounters with the Vola, where he goes and wakes them up and seeks their wisdom, their advice. Um, so he's, he's asking for their mediumship of the truth. He wants their version of what's going to happen. Is he going to be successful? Is he going to fail? Because he doesn't know. That is without, without his remit. He can't he can't do it. That's not what he's actually there for. So he's able to divine through transient spirits only um, when they're um, perceived as yeah, non-entities almost, ordinary people that are dedicated to him through being hanged or asphyxiated. He's able to tempt just briefly 
gain an insight into the other world through riding their spirit but he's only getting such tiny glimpses he's frustrated and um this is why he needs to go to the to the voller so his relationship with the dead is is very precarious and vicarious he he really needs the female the volors to voller to tell him what is going on but he also needs his small insights his snippets of the mundane world because he needs to see the memories of people as well as the foreknowledge so he needs both things so he's always moving backwards and forwards between the the dead as ordinary people and with the dead voller who are collectively able to explain much more about what they can foresee is going to happen but he requires memory as well as foreknowledge so he's always gathering knowledge from people so he can articulate he can put together through logic through thinking an idea um, by by analyzing the data he collects so he's a data miner in 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 that respect he gathers all the information from the dead that he's able to um engage but he, he wants more so he has to go to the voller so his relationship is very it's dual purpose and it's very very different in both cases so that is his purpose for a relationship with the dead and that is is how he um executes it as far as i am able to determine that was anyway. super interesting <laughs> thank you you're welcome and the final thing i wanted to ask you about is the archaic wolf cult and how it connects in to some of these kind of inter this this braid and this weave of really mysteries that we've been exploring in this discussion okay um well the archaic wolf cult is again is perhaps one that's been so well hidden um in its truest form because it seems to underline almost all um eastern european um eurasian and northern traditions um they're all founded all the warriors all the the great clans are all founded on the wolf cult it seems to be prevalent throughout all of these peoples these tribal peoples the clans the, the great motivators, primarily mo mo nomads as well, <clears throat> rather than the, the settled Western um, civilizations. Although Rome itself was also predicated upon a wolf cult. Um, but again, they were a, very much a transient people as well as one that was settled. It had its core, but it was also one that moved out, always moving outwards to conquer. And I suppose you could say that the, the wolf cult itself, its relationship to everything else that we've perhaps been discussing is it comes down to culture. And the culture is one of a warrior, strong warrior band operating as a unit, a unit under the auspices of a dominant leader um, that is dedicated to the nurture and tutelage of the rest of its pack and um, this again in, in human terms manifests as a profoundly oath-bound relationship um, at the heart of which it's deeply totemic 
Um, the wolf is a deeply totemic animal for all of these peoples I've just mentioned. Um, again, which function entirely as a pack mentality, whether that's within the clan or within a tribe or within a collective of, of clans um, and tribes. They all work as a pack. So in this work unit, then we have um, elite warriors that are trained in stealth, and discipline, strategy, cunning, duty. Um, and these are virtues that are combined within a sense of brotherhood. It's reclusive. And again, it's survived outside the normal bounds of society. Um, and so therefore, the clan itself as a warrior cult aligned to the Northern Mysteries is adopts the wolf's traditional virtues above and beyond those traditionally assigned to Odin um, because they specifically and directly relate more to heritage itself and to kindred and to the the bonds of that of that relationship um, th there is the ancestral rever reverence the the totem the totem spirit that is the focus. There is the demonstrative strength in that unit. Um, and the survival of the unit depends on how well that unit works together and how it adheres to its leadership. You need strong leadership um, to keep the pack intact and to keep the pack, the pack healthy. So all of these things are historical um, requisites for wolf cults. They are all very much um, autonomous. They all have these signifiers. They all symbolize the, the virtues we associate typically with the wolf, um, the better qualities of the wolf. The lesser qualities of the wolf are generally um, assigned to hounds or dogs and they are splinter groups that are seen as lesser than not elite again elite not in specifically superior sense but definitely in a sense of having um, a deeper connection to the spiritual aspects of that totem the closer you get to the totem the purer the essence and source you're able to absorb yourself so i think this is the purpose of those archaic wolf cults and why culturally it is such um a popular beast for many peoples of the north i mean obviously the wolf is one of the primary animals of the north and i think this has a lot to do with real totemism it has to be an element an animal that's pronounced and primary in your region it's it serves no purpose if it's halfway across the world that doesn't exist in your region um, historically or currently there's not a lot of point in that um, it has to be something that your people have related to in spirit it has to be something that they've been bound to emotionally and physically that they related to in the wild um, that they've even seen as perceived as a threat as well as protection it has to be a psychological and emotional connection um, so all of these things are very much culturally woven 
to the disciplines of form and force and how we express ritual, how we um, engage with the other, how we, the tenets that we ascribe and aspire to in those rites. Um, and even, even the projection of destiny, the, the sense of achievement, the, the fact that we win is, is down to the superior animals. Um, and their ability to survive against all odds, their, their tenacity um, is, is what we seek to adopt within ourselves as, um, as virtues. Thank you very, very, very much. Um, I am so grateful to you for agreeing to come on and speak with us. And we are, we are, just so thankful for your wisdom and your insight and your willingness to be so open with such such deeply sacred mysteries. Um, where can people find your work? And you know, uh, where can people learn more about some of these ideas? And um, perhaps even for those who would be proper for it, even potentially experience them. Um, we are um, on, I think we have a Facebook page that's um, under the, the clan of Tubal Cain. I have a personal um, page on Facebook too. Um, I'm always willing to take um, questions and speak with people and engage with messages. Those are places they can reach directly. Um, I have several books that people I would advise them to read first. Um, they're available. Some of them are in Kindle form as well, so they can be very easily available. Um, to read as much as they can about the tradition and see how it sits with them and then come to myself or my magister who also has um, a page on Facebook as Ulrich Golding, uh, also as um, Frithgild. So he's Frithgild and as Ulrich Golding. Um, that he can be found. We can both be questioned um, and reach that way. But certainly I would say read first, deeper insights into all of these things um, and, and then come back to us. And you have a series of books on, beside, besides the books that you've already published, which there's many, Star, The Starcross Serpent, Mm, there's the, the, the Starcross Serpent series, which goes specifically into the tradition of the clan. Um, the, the first one regards Evan John Jones' participation. The second one is my own. And the third one refers back to, to Robert Cochran. Um, in particular, it goes through all of his letters um, and explains what he's explaining, trying to express in there, but somewhat, as we've said obliquely, um, there's some confusing elements that I've tried to express in the explanation of those letters and terms. There's also um, The Devil's Crown, which is completes the Starcross Serpent series and goes into quite in-depth um, descriptions of how the clan work and the things that are important to us. Oh, kitty! And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Another one wants his supper now. There's the Odinic 
series and the other world series which go into the specific traditions of the the northern peoples and how they have fed into the clan um, and at what point and stage and level uh, how they they operate within it and then there's the the first one that i did which is Chubello's green fire which covers the mythopoetic um, aspect of allegory and how a lot of the ideas that are embedded within the clan and its mythos are are to be found in those allegories how they can be seen um, but again it's it's that veiled mystery um, so I've, I've taken some of the, the literary works such as Gawain and the Green Knight and Beowulf and looked into what they're saying, re reading between the lines and, and I found some expression there where people can find um, the mysteries. Um, there are other books that I've written, um, but I, I can't remember, there's, there's quite a few. Oh, Crafting the Art of Tradition is one that was very much written um, non-academically and purely in, um, in a sense of received gnosis. Uh, it's an expression while I was on an observation. Um, we all do this while we're in the clan, we go on um, pilgrimages and observations where we um, connect very deeply um, in a very disciplined and purposeful way uh, to through various dedications. Um, we re retreat from the world and immerse ourselves in spirit. And that book was the result of that journey, one particular journey, one year. And I, it is, I find, my most profound work, but others may prefer others. So, yeah, there's, there's a, quite a wide range that people can engage with, um, depending on where they want to look at what we do. Great, great. No, I, I would highly recommend our listeners go and, and look at those look at those books if they want to kind of uh, explore these ideas further. Um, thank you once again, Shani, for your for your insights and your time. You're very, very welcome. It's been my privilege to actually talk to people that are interested um, because obviously this is my life. Um, I wouldn't, I couldn't imagine not having this in my life. So it means everything to me. So if people are genuinely interested, that means a lot to me. An enthusiastic and grateful thank you to Shani Oates, made of the clan of Tubal Cain. It was our great honor to have her on as a guest. And we were absolutely humbled by her presence and wisdom and insight. I think one needs look no further for an embodiment of the principles that are lived and breathed and known from within than Shani. It, she shows how the, the mythic life, the esoteric, the one could even say Gnostic dimension of existence is accessible to those who are willing to penetrate beyond the surface life. It's amazing because she's clearly an erudite and very intelligent teacher and 
practitioner. However, the word I would use, I think, to describe her even more accurately would be wise. I felt that once we started to go beyond the skin and enter into the meat and then the marrow of things, I could not help but feel that I was in the presence of of someone who was embodying wisdom. And there's a certain there's a certain spirit and ethos that is difficult to verbally articulate when you're in the presence of someone who has more than just studied things of this nature, but has directly experienced them. Yeah, nicely said. Um, there, there is a, a wonderful depth to to her character and to uh, how she was sharing and what she was sharing. And uh, yeah, uh, very honored that she was able to come on and talk with us and educate us. Um, just, just such a deep thinker. You could tell that this is stuff that she really stews, sits and stews on um, and, and thinks quite deeply about um, and has done so for probably many decades. So uh, yeah, just a wonderful episode, a lot of great information and um, a lot of stuff to think about. Yes, for sure. And I, for one, welcome the discussion about Robert Cochran. He is sometimes a controversial figure in some circles because of who he was and what he espoused. But to me, he truly embodied authenticity. Um, having read several of his letters and writings, I can say with personal certainty that what I see in, in him was someone who carried something much older and much deeper within himself. He's a mysterious, charismatic, and powerful figure that today seems still relatively unknown, except in certain circles. Yet, in my opinion, he embodied a more authentic, though I am loath to use the term witchcraft, he embodied a more authentic form of cunning craft or witchcraft that was more inherently British and even European indigenous and shamanic as opposed to this sort of uh, constructed tradition of gardener which has its own value in its own right to the people that practice it however when we're talking about the inheritance of cochrane this is something something worth examining looking at um he was a figure to me sort of reminiscent of people, other genuine magicians like Paschal Beverly Randolph, Giordano Bruno, even Paracelsus, you know, these strong-willed, very individualistic, magnetic, charismatic, powerful, who left a lasting legacy. Yet another thing in this conversation that I found just so intriguing was the connection to the idea of a clan of a people and and the very rarefied idea too that this sort of clannish totemic tribalism is not so much connected to the idea of the land per se although it's associated with the stewardship of the land as the soul of the people itself 
And so the people can go to different places and they will still be that people and how the God embodies the sort of principle or the very essence of those people, the mm. God that is the parent or the ancestor of those people. And so there's this convergence of the divine and the human in that idea. And yeah, yet, it makes, I'm sorry. I was going to say, it uh, makes me think of the Mandaeans. I mean, they are thriving in places like Australia doing the same rituals and same practices they were doing in their quote unquote homeland. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's definitely an excellent example of that. And I, I just think that's a very valuable because the land plays a role, but I think today, especially in a lot of ancestrally oriented or rooted traditions, we see people developing a very strong association with the land to the point of identifying with it especially in uh, traditions that uh, claim indigeneity or um, a powerful ancestral practice. And I see nothing wrong with that, but I do think the distinction of the, the spirit being within the people itself and within the shared soul of the people, for instance, think of a family, your father, your uncle, and your aunt are all part of the same family line, yet each one of them, and they all share common characteristics, yet those characteristics are arranged in a different pattern in each one of their individualities. And so when you extend this back to the idea of a divine root of a people, a divine ancestor, which is a very common concept around the world, especially in older cultures, then we can see how the influence of the archetype uh, emerges within the personality and identity of each person in a unique form, yet the people who are joined together by a common ancestry share those characteristics as, a, as one identity, and that identity is, in essence, the spirit of the deity. Yeah, very interesting. Another thing I really liked about Shani coming on, similar to when we had Carrie Wisner on, um, it brings a new perspective to what witchcraft is. We have kind of a stereotypical idea burned into our brain from childhood on what witchcraft is and what witches are and, and all this. But um, the quote unquote witchcraft or the tradition that uh, came through Robert Cochran to Shani and beyond is uh, a, a little bit more of a mystical, uh, a, a deeper witchcraft that we're not necessarily familiar with in, in our you know, popular culture. It's true. It's true. And I love the, the, the thing that to me is most fundamental is the word craft. When we think of craft in pop culture, we often think of people making, you know, painting little objects or constructing little things or making wreaths and but beyond the superficial iterations of of craft it goes to something deeper it goes to the actual divine origin of the creative impulse in human beings and how craft can be something so so much deeper i mean freemasons i think understand this well but the idea of craft being something that expresses the actual higher nature of humanity the act of forging or carving 
or making or even engaging in sacred rites. These are all crafts. And in a craft, you go through stages from novice, apprentice, journeyman, master. The old European guild system was based on those ideas. And so there's this development in a craft. And I think we can apply that to, to a magical craft, to physical crafts. And there is a juncture point. Uh, before we got on here, uh, we, you and I were talking for a moment about how the old trade guilds, you mentioned this in the episode as well, how the old trade guilds were all initiatory. So to be a stonemason or to be a cobbler or to be a horseman, you had to enter in through an initiatory process. You went through rites of initiation and there were esoteric secrets to each craft because it was understood that there's a higher aspect to anything we do that involves essentially creation ex nihilo. Think of the art of the cobbler. They're making shoes out of nothing. They're taking skin and, and lace and all of these things. And all of a sudden you have shoes that's do that originates in ingenuity and often there's a god who bestows the knowledge of these skills on humankind i mean we see this in the myth of the nephilim in the book of enoch we see this in um, the greek myth of prometheus and in others we see this with tubal cain we see this with uh, all of these and these idea the idea of the inherent sacredness of craft itself is to me so powerful. Yeah, and we, we've talked about this in our theurgic episodes as well and how that's a big part of, of the theurgic act of, of demiurgy, um, becoming yes. that, that craftsman, that creator. Um, what can you bring into this world from nothing into something? And can you imbue that with, with the divine? It's so powerful. It's so powerful, and it really ultimately serves to improve the world. But it seems very, um, it, it doesn't seem powerful. It seems uh, very mundane. But <laughs> if, if you think about it a little bit deeper, it, you know, just like speech and language was very mystical and powerful, and writing was, was such a mystical act and a powerful, magical act centuries and centuries ago, and now it's just such a mundane you know, it's no big deal. Every, everything we do has to be kind of thought about a little bit more mindfully, I think, to really find find the jewels that are hidden right in plain sight. Oh, I, I that's, uh, you hit the nail on the head with that. I was just thinking today, I was just thinking today about the banality of the way people use language. Um, everybody these days is typing or communicating on the internet and in other ways, and um, there's a bastardization and a reduction um, to near meaninglessness with language. Uh, and it's amazing because I was thinking about how in earlier cultures, most people wouldn't be able to read or write. And typing is just an extension of writing. Yet you have millions of people everywhere able to read and write on these screens. And they don't realize how this very act was seen as intensely sacred. It was the province of the priests and of the noble classes to read and write. And it was seen as a gift given by gods, um, namely uh, the God that we revere in this podcast, 
who among the Greeks is called Hermes and the Egyptians was Jehoti or Thoth or Tahuti or Mercurius among the Romans. Cadmus is another. So a crafty, wise God who gave mankind words and writing. And Odin is also known as a bestower of language and the runes, which he carved craftfully into uh, the into wood from a tree and, and a tree on which he hung for nine days and nine nights. There's these divine origins and of these things that fall down into the mundane world and become obscured through the insensitivity of our perception. Right. And I mean, it's, it's plain as day that you can, you can make someone cry with your words or you can make them smile with your words. I mean, words are way more powerful than we give, you know, give them credit. Um, and I think uh, it would be to our benefit to take a step back and realize how our language uh, affects others and how even our, our language affects, you know, the type of language we use in our minds affects how we perceive and operate in the world. Um, we are, we are programming ourselves with our own language, um, oftentimes unbeknownst to us, and we're also programming those around us with our language un unbeknownst to us as well. So uh, maybe going a little deeper than we thought we would into this <laughs> topic. But I mean, it was inevitable with such a guest because she yeah. really she she brought us down a series of seven steps, and we went into a hitherto shadowed realm i want to also mention uh, we wanted to highlight in this episode as as we did in the introduction i want to just talk a little bit more about brave mysteries recordings um we're not this is not a this is not a commercial we're not being paid for this i just want to draw our listeners attention to a really what i have found to be a musical label that is filled with so many amazing albums by a plethora of very talented musicians um again it's called brave mysteries and on their label i mean there's everything from psychedelia to ambient to ritualistic mystical folk to all kinds of things witch house um it's really amazing there's some extremely beautiful albums on this label. Some of the some of the standout artists for me, it's it's hard, it's really hard to choose. But just some standout art artists for me, of course. Um Kinet Her is every album I've listened to by them is incredible. It's deeply emotional, poetic, transformative, I feel psychedelic music really love that stuff and i want to i want to highlight their music but there's there's so many others there's an album in love we stand alone by devotion just totally beautiful uh, atmospheric folk and there's plenty more there's amazing ambient on here i like ambient music a lot there's some pretty well-known artists on this label but my point is <clears throat> great stuff great people um, I originally became aware of them actually separately. I became uh, friendly with Nate, um, who's one of the 
one of the founders of the label uh, and just found him to be a wonderful, beautiful soul. And, and then um, I actually became aware of Clay Ruby years ago because I, I'm a, I, I used to appreciate um, James Jackson Toth wooden wand a lot. And I kept noticing on every out, al- all the best albums and all my favorite songs had Clay Ruby on them. I'm like, who's this Clay Ruby guy? I'm like, first he has a really cool name <laughs> and he seems to be really talented. And then I started listening to his stuff and I was like, man, this guy, he makes amazing music. Um, I want to highlight this incredible album they did called communion of saints. It is a very long album. It, has 77 songs on it each by a different artist and each song is devoted to a different saint it's incredible that's so, amazing yeah it was a, to- a huge achievement i mean getting 77 artists songs together and i mean you have songs devoted to saint anthony and saint Therese, to even more obscure saints like king saint dagobert Dagobert II, um, and even St. Cyprian for, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners are probably obsessed with St. Cyprian, <laughs> but, um, you know, just a, it's a super interesting album. I mean, it, it verges through all kinds of different musical styles and there's some true gems on it too. I mean, I strongly recommend you check out Brave Mysteries music. It's, it's run by two wonderful talented people this album if you get one album from them i would recommend getting communion of saints i mean but it, whatever you get and the, the digital album is only three dollars it's three bucks for 77 songs but these songs some of them are really would be really useful even for esoteric work or meditation or making art because they're inspiring a, a few highlights for me were Destroying Angels, Song for St. Dymphna was really, really cool. Uh, we heard Rose Quas, St. Sarah in the beginning of the episode, and uh, Clay Ruby's Song for St. Anthony's Fantastic Blood and Sons Confession, which is uh, the one devoted to St. Augustine, is a beautiful song. It just goes on. I mean, there's so much good stuff here. I just wanted to give a quick plug to these guys. They make amazing music. Uh, they're a little independent label. They just do it for the love of what they do. They do have actual concrete releases. They release on cassette and CD, as well as digital releases. And there's just all kinds of stuff on here. Strongly recommended. Check them out. Give them some love. And yeah. Cool. Cool. No, it sounds amazing. Um, and so if everyone hasn't had enough of listening to Janice talk. Now we're going into a book review. Janice, take it away. Yeah, so I just want you guys to hear me talk some more. (laughs) (laughs) No, but seriously, uh, I want to plug a book by a beloved former guest of ours, Hunter Yoder. Hunter Yoder is an active hex magician in Pennsylvania Dutch culture. Not, Not Dutch like, you know, clogs, but Deutsch like German immigrants. And um, his this book is called Der Zauberspiegel, The Magic Mi- Mirror, Hex Signs and the Folk Spirit of the Pennsylvania Dutch. It's a really wonderful little book. Hunter's written in several other books, The Backdoor Hexologist, Hyden Hexology, Nine Worlds of Hex Magic, 
Hex Highway, Der Volksfund, Hex Science Folk Tales and Witchcraft of the Pennsylvania Dutch. And um, this book is just intriguing. Um, it goes into the Germanic roots of the culture. The Hex Sign is ethnic symbolism. Talks a little about the Belsnickel, which is a very, if you're into Krampus, you should learn about Belsnickel. He's the Pennsylvania Dutch version or cousin of Krampus, I guess you could say. Talks about Mountain Mary, who was a mystic. Goes into Hexerai, the practice of witchcraft among the Pennsylvania Dutch. There's a really intriguing alchemical article in here by um, Russell Yoder, who happens to be Hunter's brother, called Evoking the Flowers, the Conjoining of Red and White in Tantra, Alchemy and Radical Pietism. Really interesting. Medieval Graffiti, The Lost Voices of England's Churches, Pennsylvania German Illuminated Manuscripts. And it just goes, there's selections from some older out-of-print books in this volume as well. This volume, as many of Hunter's other books, is really like a vault of mystical, magical Pennsylvania German culture. It's so cool. And you forgot to, you forgot to mention that we're in it. Yeah, it has our interview, an interview with yours truly, Magician and the Fool, in which Hunter, it's a transcription from the interview. And uh, yeah, it's just a great book. I love it. It's so interesting. Every time I pick it up, I read something in there that just kind of keeps me hooked. Strongly recommend it. Strongly recommend Hunter's work. This seems to be almost a companion volume to his other work, Der Volksfund. Hex, Hex Signs, Folk Tales, and Witchcraft of the Pennsylvania Dutch. Again, this is Hex Signs and the Folk Spirit of the Pennsylvania Dutch. Der Zauberspiegel, the, the Magic Mirror. Maybe Der Zauberspiegel. Um, I, I, pronouncing Pennsylvania German is uh, not my forte, so I ask forgiveness for any, any Pennsylvania German speakers who may be wanting to strangle me through the microphone but they'll have to get in line because there's a lot of people who want to do that so yep take a number i am at the front of the line <laughs> okay great sounds awesome um well actually it is awesome i have it as well um, hunter yoder and can you say that name again to the best of your yeah. ability the Zauberspiegel, the magic mirror hex signs and the folk spirit of the pennsylvania dutch if you don't know, I think you do know, but if you don't know, Hunter also makes uh, hex signs, magical hex signs, infused with es intentional esoteric symbolism that are meant to produce um, beneficial effects wherever they're placed. And uh, they're really interesting. He's such a talented, intriguing person. Yeah, they're beautiful. Cool. All right. Um, that went a little bit long, but I think it was all pretty good stuff but we should probably wrap it up now. You can find us as always in all the normal places, um, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever. I don't even know where people find podcasts anymore. Um, we're on YouTube, we're on Facebook. Yeah, drop us a line if you have any questions or uh, comments. And other than that, thank you for listening. We appreciate the time that you're putting into kind of going on this journey with us, with all of our guests and learning alongside us. Yeah. Lots of love to everybody out there. Stay safe, stay strong, stay, stay interested, read books, um, 
get off the screens and open a book. It, it's good for your gray matter. All right. Thank you. And we will see you in the next episode.